Hi, and welcome to the Inbold Company Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Gonzalez-Sander. If you are new, welcome. The Inbold Company Podcast hosts weekly conversations that encourage women of color and non-binary people of color to thrive in their personal and professional lives. We unpack how our cultural identities and upbringings impact our lives today because, yep, that matters. I'm sure you've seen it a lot lately, right? How our beliefs that we picked up when we were little from our friends, from our family members, how all of that impacts the way we think and believe things about the world around us and ourselves today. And so I want to get real for a second because I think we're all under a fuck ton of stress. Um, am I right? <laughs> I, I don't think that it's going away anytime soon. And I think that there's a lot of different layers to that stress, right? We're going through a pandemic, a financial economic crisis. We need to reelect certain officials. Um, there's a lot of things happening in the world around us, no matter who you are. There's some of us that are working on how to be more cognizant of our isms. Um, there's people that are working on anti-racist work that they need to do. I'm doing it as well, right? Thinking and um, addressing the different biases that we have so that we can show up for ourselves and for each other. Super important, but we've got to recognize the fact that we're all still going through one of the biggest things that's happened this year is this pandemic, right? That's, um, you might be really stressed about work, about job security, about even finding a job. And I just want to acknowledge all of the different things going on in your life because I I'm with you. I feel that, um, and I want to acknowledge the various levels of stress and overwhelm that we're all currently feeling. So can we take a deep breath together? Wherever you're listening to this, at home, in your car, in on a walk, just let's just take a deep breath, okay? <sighs> Oof. I feel like I'm constantly holding my breath these days. And I want to thank you for being here. I, I know that there's a lot of content out there right now and rightfully so, because a lot of that content is really, really, really important. It is resources so that we can continue to help and support black people. I have spent the past couple of weeks reflecting about how I show up in the world the ways that I could be better. And I've been slowly working through Rachel Ricketts spiritual activism 101 course, um, doing a couple of other things, reading books, um, reading resources, and you know, doing the best I can, looking up podcasts, and I can link some of the ones that have really resonated with me recently in the show notes. Um, but I really do think that the best place to start doing the work is by starting with yourself. 
and that the work that you do on yourself can transform the people around you and the people around them and so on and so forth. So for my non-black folks, there is a history of anti-blackness in our communities. I think that we can all agree that that is true. Um, for, you know, in, in this particular sense today, we're gonna talk about anti-blackness in Asian communities. And I think that it can show up in a lot of different ways in our own families. Let's say like either your parents are outrightly telling you who you can and cannot date, right? Like based off of their skin color, or it could be something as small as like, you know, hey, you're too dark. And thinking like, what does that mean when you say that? And why do you say that? And maybe asking your grandparents or your parents why they say that. Um, but I'm going to recognize that that is also very hard to call out your parents, depending on who they are and their own personal backgrounds and traumas, because for, let's say, um, Asian American Pacific Islanders, a lot of our families are immigrants and we have to, uh, um, address the nuances there. And that's going to be a lot of what we talk about today. So today's guest is Gwyn Hyung Nguyen. Pronouns are she and they. And Gwyn Hyung has a strong research background with a Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology from Dominican University and a Master of Education focused on student affairs and higher ed from Texas State University. Their academic focus is on queer identities, Asian identity, and mental health. Their professional passion is to provide educational opportunities for everyone to make spaces around them more welcoming, affirming for women, LGBTQIA plus people, and people with more than one of these identities. Additionally, they use intersectional research, personal experience, compassion, and storytelling to foster and develop allyship practices that center the voices of marginalized communities. And finally, they love using dry humor in food to connect with others. And I can attest to that. Uh, we have great banter going on. I think that's partially because we figured out that we were from the same area. So we're both from the Chicago area. And honestly, talking to Gwen Hyung was like talking to family for me during this episode. And we're going to dive in. And she's going to talk uh, about her personal experience with addressing anti-blackness in her family and her experience with trying to, you know, navigate that, right? Re-looking at ourselves and looking at the different isms that we have and, and finding how we can better show up in the world. So... Hopefully y'all learn something, you can relate to this. And again, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share with a friend who would love it too. And as you know, we always start off with an Oracle card and I'd love to hear if this one resonates with you and make sure to stick around until the end of the conversation because we're going to have a I have a question for you and, and I want to hear what you have to say. So stick around and I'll talk to you again soon.
to do before every interview is take out these oracle cards. I honestly love doing in-person interviews more, obviously, without all the technology situation happening. But, you know, it is what it is. So we're going to do this virtually. So I'm going to start shuffling. And then you can just tell me when to stop. Stop. Okay. So the card that I pulled for you is Thrive. So I'll read the little description and then you can tell me if you feel like that resonates with you at all. So what you focus on magnifies as you move and direct your energy into a healthy, unquestioning current, one which foundations are based on surrendering and trusting that every moment is here to teach you something, to help you crack through the cage that has kept you bound. You will flourish and grow into your most authentic self. Ooh, I like that card. Yeah. Yeah. How does it resonate with you? Yeah. So like one of the things I always talk about is that like depression, anxiety, and it honestly feels like sometimes like I'm in my own cage and every single day I'm learning something new. And I mean, I reflect upon like a couple of years ago when I, before I started my grad program and everything where I felt like I didn't understand really who I was, um, the model minority myth, you know, all the things that like, like kept me to kind of like be according to what society deemed me as. But mm-hmm. now that I've come to where I am today, I'm amazed by all the things that I've been doing. And every single time I looked at my LinkedIn, I'm like, Jesus Christ, this thing is huge. <laughs> You're like, but- Damn. Mm-hmm. Look at you. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Well, that's kind of what we're going to talk about. I really want to hear about, you know, your growth. I mean, we're both from the same area and you actually grew up in Chicago. I did not. I grew up outside of it, (laughs) but same area. And so we got, we got those Chicago area codes and I was doing some creeping. I didn't realize that you went to Taft high school. Yeah. Okay. One of my good friends, well, one of my best friends from home, her sister, taught at Taft. My cousin taught in CPS. He, oh my gosh, the name I can't, I'm not going to be able to remember at this exact moment, but yeah, he taught CPS. And that was when they had all the teacher strikes back in 2010 or something like that. But I mean, you, I think Taft is more diverse than where I went to school, but I'll let you attest to that. I was like, I'm just making an assumption, but what was your childhood like growing up in Chicago yeah it's very blurry every single time I think about it because I think a lot of it's been like I'm still remembering a lot of it because of all the trauma I went through when I was a kid Mm -hmm. when I went to elementary school and middle school I was like one of the three Asians in my class year and we were all separated so like in my class I was specifically usually like the one out of two or maybe the only Asian in my entire classroom So I really didn't get a chance to get to know my own roots and my culture. Mm. And I always had to deal with a lunchbox experience where like anytime I try to bring home food or bring food to lunch because I wanted to feel cool because that's what like all the cool kids did on TV. I was like, okay, this is going to be cool. And then people were like, what is that? And so, yeah, I did went to Taft uh, High School and 
I remembered also feeling lonely as well because like, yes, it was relatively diverse in some aspects. Like there was folks who were part of the Polish community and part of the black community, part of the Latinx slash Hispanic community. Um, And there were Asian folks, but we were really sporadic. Like it really depends on like the year, but also Mm. in mind of like, because I'm Vietnamese, like recognizing that a lot of the Vietnamese community didn't really start coming over around after the Vietnam War or like during the Vietnam War. So that was when the influx happened. So I remember one of my mentors, they said like, we're technically one of the newest group of Asians that came to the U.S. And like, she's only in, I think, her 30s at the time. And she said like, I'm one of the elders of our group. And I was just like, what? So it was a very deep learning experience because like, again, I never had a lot of Asian friends and I never had a lot of Viet friends either. And a lot of my family who are Viet are mostly in California or in Germany. Mm -hmm. We were separated by the war. So it was really tough because even Back then, I was mostly predominantly around a lot of white folks. Mm-hmm. My first partner, nobody judged me on this, but like my first partner is white, cisgender, heterosexual man. And he had so much privilege that he didn't realize, even though we were going through the recession and he lost his mother and he had to drop out of school. But he blamed a lot of POC for a lot Interesting. of... Yeah. And so I learned a lot of that from him, like the perpetualization and stereotypes from him, as well as from my family as well. Wow. What was that like then for you to be dating somebody that was cis, hetero, white? Because how do you identify? I mean, I think I know, but let's just, we can talk a little bit about it. Yeah. Like now. That's a good, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and then also doing this on a podcast and telling all the world. No, uh, yeah, I'm totally, I love being transparent because you never know who's listening. So, oh yeah. And if you're comfortable, I was like, I don't know. I was like, I should have asked you like, if you're okay with talking about it, I don't know if like your family knows or whoever and that sort of thing. So I was like, that's my bad. Yeah, no, no, no. You're good. You're good. Okay. Because representation matters. And I think authenticity matters too. So I identify as a Vietnamese, Asian. Um, I'm trying to avoid saying Vietnamese American because of the fact that why do we add a hyphen onto our ethnicity? And I just find it very interesting. It's something that I just read and I was just like, oh, that's interesting. Anyway, a Vietnamese, queer, gender fluid, panromantic, demisexual, someone who has, uh, has depression, anxiety, um, spiritual Buddhist, first generation college student. You know, I, I'm in middle class. I used to be in lower class. Sometimes I feel like I'm in lower class just because, like, the end of the month, I'm like, I can't go around. <laughs> oh, like, it, it's been tough, uh, especially with finances. But, yeah, mm-hmm. it was really tough when I was a kid. Um, it was always hard having to date my ex at the time because I didn't understand what yellow fever was and how – bad that was and people would always one of us like oh my partner has yellow fever yada 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 and he would say stuff that was really transphobic homophobic that I never realized until now how problematic Mm -hmm. was but because he was like my early relationship at the time and granted I started dating at 13 so and we were in a relationship for about five years up until I was in college well oh long on and off 
very long, very on and off. It was really problematic, abusive. It was great. Haha, <laughs> great. Dry humor. Great. No. <laughs> I'm like, well, we totally don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. But I feel like those like early, from like a general standpoint, those like first relationships that you have from a romantic standpoint always really stick with you, right? And I know earlier you mentioned that like you internalize some of the things that he would say about POC, about being homophobic, transphobic, and it affected the way that you then looked at yourself. And I think that that happens a lot for, you know, people in general growing up and especially for women of color, if they grow up in particularly, I think in predominantly white communities, because I think that as you're growing up as kids, right, you will really want to belong. You really want your peers to like you. And if you're trying to fit in, that means that you go with what the majority are saying. And if the majority aren't open-minded or understand the types of things that they say, you internalize that. And I mean, I also, my first boyfriend, I mean, almost all of my boyfriends were all white growing up. (laughs) So I I understand. And like, I remember girls, if I was dating somebody, they would be like, oh, they would call me like a beaner. They'd call me like Max. I mean, I'm not Mexican Filipina, but like, you know, they would just use my name, what I looked like against me. And that starts to do something to how you view yourself. Oh yeah, definitely. I think it's very interesting too, like how our community thinks about like mental health, because I still am learning how to heal from that trauma because it was a a really dark time for me where Mm -hmm. I really like internalized a lot of that anti-Asian, even with me. Like I wanted to distance myself from my Asian culture as much as I possibly could And um, it made me really resent a lot of who I was, my language, my culture, and my family. I think at one point, I even nearly lost a lot of my Vietnamese because I spent so much time trying to distance myself and try to act more white, right? Or at least assimilate, in other Mm -hmm. words. And it was hard. It was really difficult. And I'm still going, I have two therapists just for that. And it's just... It's really difficult to even like trying to find mentors who look like you and even talk about like, what are you going through and having to understand that. Because I remember trying to find people who would try to explain to me what I was going through, but because there was that language barrier with my family and my family also like, you know, my mom, when she immigrated here like three years after the war, you know, she stopped going to school after high school and my father, he wasn't allowed to go to school after like third grade wow yeah I mean I could go into that too I mean there's a number of things Uh, there's so many things I know that when we first talked I was it was like a broad topic but I think when we start you know talking about how we grew up and everyone's personal experience on the show I think it's also really important because I know that everyone's experience is very nuanced but there is a lot of layers and complexities and everyone's experience is different if, you know, not all Vietnamese people that immigrated to the United States after the war have had the same experience. But I think it's great to be able to hear these specific stories about what it was like. I mean, for your family, do you speak Vietnamese predominantly with your parents? 
God, goodness, I try. Um, I try really hard. I speak mostly Vietlish with that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think half it's, yeah, it's half half. I think it's really difficult sometimes too because like when my parents immigrated here, right? Like my mom was like in her teens or like maybe like in her single digits and my dad was in his teens. When they immigrated here, they had really nothing. And they travel between Chicago and California and then end up in Chicago where they raised me and had me. But like when we went back to Vietnam back in 2008, they talk about how when they look at the streets that they used to roam around or like ran around in, they would always talk about like how this used to be here, this used to be here, or the language is so different now. And so anytime we go back or even talk about or anything, like if we hear even, um, like, let's say we find a flyer that's translated in Viet and talking about COVID, right? I share mm-hmm. it with them and they're like, that's awesome. But this is not the Vietnamese writing that I'm known, like I've grown up with. And so it's really hard wow. to even have that conversation with them because to them, that is foreign, mm. even though it's Vietnamese. So it's really hard for me sometimes to even talk about my culture because I feel a disconnect from what my parents know about Vietnam and Vietnamese culture to the disconnect of like what is currently Vietnam and Vietnamese culture. Wow, I never thought about that. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, did most of their family come here? Yeah. So my dad's side, he has three other half siblings. One mm-hmm. of them died during the Vietnam War. One of them is California and the other one's in Chicago. But they're all distant from each other because of the fact that the war spread them so apart. So they grew up independent. Separated already. Mm-hmm. Got it. Where do they live in California? So Orange County, California, mostly. In that okay. Area. And then my mother, she has many of her relatives here, but they're also very sporadic and spread out. Some of them are in Germany, like I said. They were separated due to the war. And I didn't find out until, like, my grandfather's funeral. So it was like, oh. Hey, you had cousins in Germany? Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think part of what we we're going to talk about today is, like, addressing anti-Blackness in the Asian community, but specifically from your lens. And I think that something that we'll probably touch on is that our families that immigrated also went through a lot of trauma. And it's like trying to explain something of this nature is a little bit more difficult, Mm -hmm. I think, because they have their own layers of trauma, generational trauma, and things that they haven't really addressed, Mm -hmm. nor had the language to address as immigrants. I think when you immigrate, right, in the way that some of our families did, the pressure is on, like, they don't have time to think about their trauma, they're trying to provide for their family, yeah, they're trying to survive. And like, really, that is a privilege for us, that was born out of their immigration, right, to America, for us to be able to have the chance to think about our family's trauma and generational trauma in the way that we can therefore show up in the world. But we'll get to that. And I am curious, I know you are the assistant director of the Gender and Sexuality Center at UT, serving women in LGBTQIA plus communities. (laughs) Sorry, I'm reading. I have my notes. You're good. And I wanted to make sure I said that right. And how did you get there? Because I know you said it's been a journey for you to kind of 
really explore your identity. And I would agree. I, it didn't really happen for me until, you know, a little bit post-college. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of when like my brain went like, you know, kind of exploded because I had the language now, but I'm curious what your experience was like. Yeah, I will say like a lot of this experience really stems from my parents. Like, and it, it might be like, well, how is that connected? Well, because when I was younger, I used to hear a lot of their stories about them immigrating here. And at the time, I really didn't understand why they were telling me about how they, like they had to sell stuff in order for them to make money. My father, he hid under a boat in order for him to immigrate here. But when I remember them telling me that, I remember seeing the trauma in their eyes, right? They didn't have the words to describe it. And then also having to deal with my abusive relationship that stemmed for five years. I remember going to college and thinking to myself, like, I'm again in another educational space where I am one of the three Asians in my graduating class. Wow. Where did you go? I went to Dominican University. Oh, okay. Which is in River Forest, uh, uh, Illinois. It's like 30 minutes from Chicago. And I remember like saying to myself, like, wow, this, this sucks. Like not being able to find my people and wishing that I could find uh, my people because I miss having to drink bubble tea. Now yes. explain what bubble tea was, having to be like, I want some pho, I want some <laughs> I want my lisi. And then I was just like, and then people were just like, what is that? And I had to keep explaining it. Or introducing you. it, right? And like, oh here, this is what it is. And people would always say like if I brought food from home, they would be like, man, it smells like Asian food in here. And I was like, okay. I'm having a lot of lunchbox experience again. But again, in uh, my school, there was very little representation of POC on staff and faculty. And I never had the conversations about like, what does Asian identity mean? Usually it was like not even talked about in a lot of my classes. So I was just frustrated and really sad. And I saw a lot of people appropriating a lot of Asian cultures that I didn't know how to explain and why I felt so uncomfortable. Now, on the flip side, I also perpetuated a lot of isms and stereotypes because like, I know that when college was started for me, I remember learning about Black Lives Matter. And I was like, oh, Black Lives Matter. Awesome. What about All Lives Matter? Like thinking about all the other people. And I was like, And I just didn't understand it, right? It took me a long time for me to understand why Black Lives Matter, especially Black Trans Lives Matter. But it was like because of all that anti-racism and anti-Asian-ness that I felt within myself that I learned from my ex that I brought it into those spaces and causing a lot of harm for my friends who identify as Black and Latinx slash Hispanic. And then that was when I realized like, I need to have some more conversations. So I took a woman in gender studies class and it launched me into this work. And I thought to myself, I want to go to work in a post-secondary higher education and be a leader or be a representation for other Asian folks. And at the time I just identify as Viet. So I was like, I want to be that person. And I just, I think I had like a superhero complex, but then when I applied to doing an alternate spring break in New Orleans and try to learn more about gentrification, anti-Blackness, racism, and all that jazz, 
I got the news that I was accepted into the SAHI program at Texas State, which is the Student Affairs and Education program at Texas State. And I also got the assistantship for the LGBTQI retention program and on, with the Office of Student Diversity and Inclusion. So many acronyms. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> and the thing that made me want to go to Texas State, granted, it's in San Marcos. It's very similar to River Forest, Illinois, like in Chicago or Dominican University. Like it's not predominantly um, POC. And if there are, right, they're usually at the forefront. And specifically, it's not a lot of Asian populations, right? Because I had the option of either going to Texas State or U of H. And Houston has a lot more Asian. Yeah. And so the reason why I went to Texas State was because my supervisor or the supervisor at the time who oversees my graduate assistantship affirmed my Asian identity. And that was the first time I had ever witnessed someone saying, I want to learn your Vietnamese name. I want to know how to pronounce it. Let me know. I want to sit here and learn from it. And I was like, oh my God, because in middle school, elementary school, high school, I went as my American name or Pauline. And then during college, I tried to transition it to Quinn. So that way it'd be Quinn Hung. But then no one could say Quinn Hung. And they were like, oh, I would rather say Quinn because it's easier. And I was like, you know what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he was the reason why I was like, I'm going to Texas State. Jesse Silva, I will say his name. And I hope he hears this podcast one day, knows that he helped change my life. And he doesn't identify as an uh, Asian person, right? And he's a part of the Latinx Hispanic community. And he was able to say, yo, I see you and I'm doing my work and I may not know what the hell I'm doing, but I'm here for you. And in that one instant of him just being like, hey, I want to learn how to say your name correctly and use your actual name and learn about you. That was when you were like, I feel seen. Yes. I felt seen, and for the first time, I felt like I was able to be myself. Like, I didn't have to pretend to be, like, close to whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. And that holds me on a journey to my graduate program where I had to learn more. I had to force myself to learn more about, like, all of my aspects of identities, but also other identities as well. But the funny thing was, was that I learned more about other people's identities before I started learning more about my Asian identity which was very odd. Like I understood more about the model minority myth at the start of my graduate program, but I didn't understand the complexity of being Asian, like colorism, the hierarchy within our Asian community. Cause we mostly mm-hmm. when we think of Asian, we think of East Asian, but we forget about our Pacific Islanders, our South Asians, our Southeast Asians, and essentially our social class and all that jazz that comes to with being Asian and the diaspora of it. And it's so much more complicated and it's beautiful and wonderful at the same time. But also how colonization has really influenced and impact how we are today. Like, I didn't realize that Vietnamese language, like we use alphabets now, but it used to look something completely different, more like what uh, Chinese language looks like and Japanese language and Korean language and with characters, right? Mm. used to have that but we don't have that anymore what is it like now it's a more of like kind of like if you look at some spanish or french wordings like right mm-hmm. if you read a french book it kind of looks like that because the french colonized vietnam 
Oh, interesting. You know, Nina's told me and taught me a lot of, about the history of Vietnam from her perspective with her family because her family speaks French, like her grandma speaks French, I'm like almost positive. And I know that she did tell me about that once. And I was like, that's so interesting. I mean, it's very similar to like how the Philippines was colonized by Spain. And that's why we all have like Spanish last names and like why a lot of our language has Spanish words and, and that sort of thing. So that makes sense. That's super interesting. I'm like, wow, sorry. I'm, you know, when you, when you learn something and you're like, I need to sit on that for a hot second. <laughs> but one thing that really like sticks with me from your story so far is that like something so like simple, right? Jesse Silva. Jesse Silva. That he did one small thing, which mm-hmm. is actually a big thing for you, which is that he took the time to genuinely try to know you. And that mm-hmm. had made such a large impact on your life. Mm-hmm. And if everyone today could just be a little bit more intentional, even if you are wrong, I think that you could continue to spread and change, you know, somebody's life even with just like that small moment of really seeing somebody and being intentional. And I just thought that was really beautiful. I was like, wow, that's really amazing. Yeah. And Not only that, he did some of that work behind the scenes when I wasn't aware of, because I would hear from his colleagues like, yeah, Jesse, during um, when we were talking about graduate students and who would go for us, what graduate assistantship, he would advocate for your name, like saying your name. And I was like, oh, so this is not a one type thing. This is like you firm about this. (laughs) And he learned a lot of that from his supervisor who is also Dr. Sherry Ben. And I also want to give her a shout out because she's also a Black woman who is in leadership in higher ed and also advocates for all voices, right? And also makes sure that she's very adamant about like, hey, this is what's going on, not just for all of us, but for us here in the space, but for every other community that's affected by this. And she makes sure that she sits down and hears about it. Because I remember how she was very adamant of like making sure that I understand and learn about my Asianness. Because one of the things that she said was like, you, Gwen Hung, have connected with each of us in different ways based on some of your identities that you share with us. But the one thing that we were never able to provide for you was our connection with your Asian-ness. And so I want to make sure that you know and remember that when you are out there connecting with people to also find your Asian community. Even though I see myself as your elder, I still want you to find your Asian community. All right. I'm going to try not to cry. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing that you had those supervisors and mentors, though, because I think that they're very hard to come by. Yes, they're so hard to come by. It's very hard to find, like, leaders that, you know, people that are older than us that can mentor us, at least in my experience as well. It was very difficult. I went to Iowa. Oh, (laughs) how was that? (laughs) Very interesting experience. I just like have to say that I really do love when we talk because now that I heard, I mean, I heard your voice yesterday and I heard your voice today and you like really remind me of 
like talking to family just I don't know if it's because we're both from the Chicago area or like what it is but it is so comforting and it just makes me smile and plus like you super know what I'm talking about when I say certain things you know I'm like Schaumburg the Ikea Woodfield Mall Mm -hmm. going to Stratford Square Mall and watching like peep girl little girls throw thongs at Jesse McCartney you know Mm -hmm. like that was like my childhood Anyway, (laughs) yeah, Iowa. And I talk about my experience in college a lot, I think, because college is, I feel like a really weird, pivotal time of exploration. I think if you have the opportunity to go away to college and be mostly surrounded by people that you don't know, there's a good chance that you are either able to forge a new identity and path that you've always wanted to do and or feel like you're rehabbing to find a place and belong, right? Like there's kind of like this weird exploration college where you're looking for your people, you're trying to figure out who you are. Maybe you're getting pulled in different directions. And yeah, I was predominantly white. It's a, it wasn't necessarily my first choice. I really wanted to go somewhere that was more diverse because like you, I was always, you know, one of three, one of four, you know, Asians in the room mm-hmm. a lot of the time. And you know, you just can't really put your finger on what it is at the time. You know, you think something's missing, but you just don't know exactly what it is. And it's not until you get a lot older and you have that hindsight that you can be like, oh, it's because no one really understood me. I don't think in the way that I wanted to be understood. And that missing piece for me was the reason why I kept following that and why I landed where I am today, because, you know, in Iowa, I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast before, like I would be like walking in the Ped mall, which is kind of like um, our downtown area. And a white guy had like yelled at me, like go back to Korea. And I was like, excuse me. Like I was so far away from him. We weren't even interacting. And this stuff would happen. I'd be on the opposite side of the street and someone would be like, it was Halloween and my, my friend, AJ Green, love him. We were walking home and obviously I don't condone violence, but, <laughs> you know, like this guy's like saying racial shit at me. And my friend, AJ was like, I started crying and he, I was like, what? And partly from being drunk, probably, and partly from being really frustrated. Mm-hmm. And my friend, AJ went and punched him in the face. And like I said, I don't condone, (laughs) but like, yo, I'm not going to lie and say that I didn't enjoy having friends that were like willing to stand up for me. And they don't have the language for like them being what was then I would call still being an ally in some form of like, we just didn't know. It's not as talked about, but that was my experience at Iowa. There was like, you know, something of that nature would happen. And like, for example, that guy that I remember that yelled at me downtown and told me to go back to Korea. It was funny because he was a regular at the student gym that I worked at. So I worked at like this, the new facility, like the new gym that everybody went to. Mm -hmm. I worked at the front. And I remember I was like, that fucker, he comes here every day. And I remember he came in and I just, I like railed into him basically. And like, he was so scared to come to the gym and he avoided it and he avoided me. And then I told all of my coworkers and like all my coworkers were like staring at him and like, you know, giving him dirty looks and stuff. And I just like embarrassed the shit out of him in front of everyone that worked there. And it was really amazing. 
but yeah, that was kind of like my Iowa situation, you know? I'm so like, got it. I was really happy I did too. I remember my heart was like pounding and I was like, I'm really fired up about this, but it was just difficult to navigate, you know? Cause you're like the only, you're really like, for me, it was like, there was a lot of international students, but I don't fit in with the international students because I'm not international. Like I'm from and grew up in the United States of America. Like, so very different. And what people liked to do is group me with the international students because we're Asian, but it's like our experiences aren't the same. And that was a little bit of what I experienced a lot, like throughout college and just, you know, just trying to understand my place in the world or like who I was in this community. And I was really happy to graduate. (laughs) It was a great time. I made a lot of really awesome friends, but I was like, I gotta get out of here. And then I moved to Spain. So I was just like, like jetted out. I'm jealous right now. (laughs) I was like, I will teach English and I will live abroad. And that is also what really helped me was being able to be around people from different cultures, like a lot more. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah, it was nice. It's a good time. <laughs> Your face right now. <laughs> like, I want to move to Spain. Not right now, but like, heck yeah. <laughs> not at this moment. They're not on total lockdown anymore. But yes, I loved it. Big thank you to Boss Babes ATX for sponsoring season one of the In Bold Company podcast. So you guys, I love this nonprofit so much because they have been so supportive of Inbold Company since the very, very beginning, and especially with producing this podcast. So not only have they supported me, but each year they educate and connect 1,500 plus emerging women and non-binary creatives, entrepreneurs, and leaders through their different programs with 20,000 plus community members per year attending their programs. I mean, honestly, that's like a mouthful for me to say, but they do such a great job. And we all know that being an entrepreneur, creative, human trying to do things is super hard without access to resources and community. In May 2020, Boss Babes ATX will be introducing their first ever membership. So this is for women and non-binary leaders seeking personal and professional development. The membership tiers will be anywhere from $5 to $50 a month, and it will include access to Boss Babes ATX personal resource guides to intimate networking and trainings with other thought leaders and mentors in the community. So to learn more about Boss Babes ATX programs and their memberships, head to bossbabes.org. And you can use the code IMBOLD2020 for 10% off anything in their shop, their membership when it launches, and all ticketed Boss Babes ATX events for 2020. You can support them while supporting us. Thank you so much, Boss Babes ATX. I just had this conversation with this other woman that I got connected through through Boss Babes. And it was funny because we both lived in Spain and we were like, honestly like we like liked that we were thriving out there because everyone thought we were like really like hot you know we were like oh cool like and we understand that part of it is kind of like because no one's really seen anyone that looks like us like we get that but it was still really nice 
when we like agreed upon it. There is something nice about it, but also, you know, I also don't want to be like, what is the word? Fetish size? Mm-hmm. How do I say that? Not a hard time today. Yeah. You're right. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, there's two sides. So it's good to address. <laughs> I feel like I went on a tangent or something, but whatever. It's my podcast. So I went on a tangent. But I want to circle back to our conversation yesterday, right? I was like, yesterday you told me that you had like a breakthrough moment with your mom. Mm-hmm about Black Lives Matter. Is that true? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that or like how you guys got there together? Yeah. So I will say a disclaimer is that ever since I went to high school and started my relationship with my ex, my situation with my family has never really been great, specifically with my parents, because my parents were very like helicopter parents. Like they just were like really strict. I had a curfew up until I was went to college. That was how freaking strict they were. But when my sister, she was able to stay out a little later. Okay, she knows that. So I could throw her <laughs> But my mother and father, they threatened me at a very young age. And I think this was their way of parenting. And also maybe trauma from their parents. But like, they told me that if I ever got pregnant in high school, they would kick me out. And so I never came out to them at the time. So like that fueled how much I didn't like talking to my parents. And when I went to college, my mother wanted to try to rebuild my relationship with her. And she started trying to say, I love you. And, you know, in the Asian community, we don't say that. (laughs) We don't say that. (laughs) So so ever since I went off to um, grad school, it was the first time that both of her children were out of state because my sister was going to Connecticut College at the time. And mm-hmm. I was in Texas and she was still in Chicago. And we were talking about Black Lives Matter and anti-Blackness. But like, again, as I grew up, I was able to develop the language for it. But the more I grew up, the more they saw more of my degree. And it was really hard for them to come to terms that I was technically having this privilege, which again, they didn't have the language for. So I had to be able to figure out like, how do I shift their view of me from being a child to an adult? And it was a really quick transition because I lived in a dorm. So they didn't see me a lot of times. So it was like a bit weird, like, oh, child, adult. There was no transition. Uh, No pun did Anyway, (laughs) so I remembered when I was a kid, my dad told me the story and my mother would agree with him because of her experience working in Yasuan because most of her clients are mostly black or white and anything that she saw on the a TV would fuel the anti-black mm. rhetoric. And so I remember her saying like, or my dad saying like, yo, there's a reason why black folks are this because you usually see them on the news going to jail or being arrested. And I was like, no, but I didn't know how to say like, are you with that? Because my dad, you know, had that power um, privilege at the time when I was a kid and I just did not want to sit through a three hour lecture. So um, Mm -hmm. I remember him telling me the story when I was a kid saying when he was younger, when he first immigrated to the U S there was a couple of, black folks on the lakefront of Chicago and he was biking around getting to know the city and they according to him came up to him and try to take his bike I don't know exactly if that's true or not 
because again, he just immigrated there. Maybe there was a language barrier, who knows? But I remember him saying that he ran off as fast as he could, went back to his sister who has lived in the U.S. for quite some time and said, yeah, the reason why they tried to harass you was because you're Asian. And so that kind of fueled some of my anti-Blackness in myself as I grew up with all the other things that I've talked about. And then we talked about Black Lives Matter in college. But again, my father jumped in, was talking about that story and then talking about how the news did this and that. And the funny thing was that my aunt, his older sister at the time, or is uh, helped him uh, immigrate here, she's married to a Black man. Oh. So he lived in a Black neighborhood for quite some time. So it was very interesting how that manifests because, again, if you have bad representation on TV Mm -hmm. and he's coming in as a foreigner, right, or an immigrant, people are going to view him this way and therefore feel his stereotype. So now that I've been coming back to help them out with uh, stuff with COVID and everything, while keeping my distance and also washing my hands, I promise everybody I'm wearing a mask. <laughs> Anybody who's listening, please don't go on my Twitter and say, why aren't you doing this? I know that I'm taking precautions because there is also a barrier for them. I want to make sure that they get the right information because I know a lot of people are saying that COVID's not real. And so my mom has started noticing the anti-Asian sentiments or racism towards our community. And she's like, I've never seen this happen before. I've lived here since the 70s. I don't understand why this is happening. And I was like, mom, here's why. Here's the model minority myth. Here's the yellow peril. She still doesn't really understand the yellow peril too much, but she's like, she's like getting it. And this is happening. And the probably the reason why we never saw a lot of this was because now we have uh, camera phones that are recording this. And you're probably noticing more articles about Black folks getting harassed there's violence towards them, police violence. And this is why we're having conversations about Black Lives Matter. And it suddenly clicked for her, like being able to compare the two, because now that she's like, oh, aware of our safety and the violence that could possibly happen to us, she's now understanding it. As far as my father on the other hand, I'm not too sure mm-hmm. because he's more stubborn than I am. And I'm a Taurus, so I'm naturally stubborn. Oh, I love Taurus. <laughs> We are hard-headed, though. <laughs> and we talk about food a lot. That's great. Do you know what your um, moon sign and your rising sign is? Libra, Libra. <gasps> I'm a Libra moon, too. Oh, hey! <laughs> we don't like confrontation that much in our in our personal lives. <laughs> We're like, yeah, I want balance. So I feel you. You're like, you know, it's okay. I think you can just chip at your dad slowly. He seems like he might have a couple of layers there that we're trying to peel back, you know? Because I do still find that really interesting that your aunt is married to a black man and he lived in a predominantly black neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Does he like your aunt's husband? I don't know. Like, Did they get along? Oh. <laughs> I, I have no idea. Because the what I was able to piece together, right? Because again, my dad... And my parents, whenever I ask them, trauma kicks in in their head. And I'm like, oh, I see it in their eyes. So what they're able to tell me was that my father's half-sister was really like, I think also internalizing anti-Asianist within her own self. Mm -hmm. Because she really 
wasn't very like into her Asian-ness when I was growing up with her. And she's the eldest of his siblings. And I remember like she had children and grandchildren and they both, all of them, each of her generations looks very black. Like if they were walking down the street, you could not tell that they're biracial or multiracial at all. And they kind of learn about their Vietnamese-ness kind of like through random celebrations. And that's about it. So I remember my father talking little bits about his older sister, but not as much. I think I remember him saying like, I wanted to get out of there as soon as possible, but I wasn't sure if it's because he envisioned his life in the U S a lot differently from what he anticipated going through because he used to live in their basement and he used to take a, uh, wear a lot of hand-me-downs and they couldn't afford a lot of things. So I don't really know exactly. The secrets of Asian parents. I know. It would take, it would help my therapy so much. It's an encyclopedia. It's like multiple encyclopedias. Mm -hmm. It's true. The secrets that Asian parents keep and grandparents. (laughs) I, yeah, I like wish people could have seen your face just now. (laughs) I I had to remember that they can't, they can't see you. (laughs) Well, Circling back also to what you said about your mom kind of like seeing the anti-Asian movement that was happening with COVID right next to Black Lives Matter. When she saw them side by side, she kind of went, oh, mm-hmm. right. Is that that's kind of when things clicked for her, right? Yeah. Seeing those two things. Mm-hmm. So I just want to point out that there is so much power in personal experience and personal connection to what we see and the power of media, Mm -hmm. which is scary Mm -hmm. and also good. But I think we have to remember those two things or those are things that I wish the media would remember when they are putting out news. And I'm happy that there are other ways to consume media that aren't necessarily only from news channels Mm -hmm. because if you looked at your parents story right the news of anti-asianness with the start of covid helped her see why black lives matter Mm -hmm. in that movement and the connection between the two because i don't think a lot of asians that have dived into their asianness realize the complexity of the model minority myth which is that like in predominantly white spaces, you can be safe until someone decides that they don't like you. Mm-hmm. And that becomes confusing when you feel like maybe you're in a safe place and someone can take it away from you. And that's just something that I've been simmering on. I know with the new Facebook group for, I don't know, did we pick a name last night? Okay. <laughs> anyway, it is a, a group of Asians in Austin that are looking for uh, social and social change. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say that for now. I don't know if y'all have talked about that specifically in depth, but there is a lot that people can dive into in terms of if you're a a non-black POC, Mm -hmm. you know, whether or not you're in the Latinx Hispanic community or you're in the Asian community what have you, like there's 
a lot of nuances. And I think that, and I hope that y'all get the chance and the time to break away from social media, because I think it's pretty time consuming and start like reflecting on your own identity, mm-hmm. which can be hard. I know, because I think it, it does bring up a lot of trauma for a lot of folks. And so I understand that it can be difficult. Uh, and I'm not saying everyone has to do it all in a day. I mean, we both just said it took us like years really to kind of be in the place that we're at now. And I definitely haven't learned everything that I need to learn. And I learn something every day. So yeah. What has work been like for you at UT with the Black Lives Matter movement? Am I allowed to ask you? Can you talk about it or not really? Yeah, I can talk a little bit. I think it's funny because whenever I think about work, I feel like community work and UT work is very similar because I'm like one of the few Asians in my division. So I do a lot of trainings and workshops and I also teach a class. And when I do my trainings and workshops, I meet about like 3000 people every year. So as an introvert, I'm exhausted. <laughs> and then on top of that, I'm teaching students and, you know, they're at the prime of their life, predominantly white, but predominantly queer and talking about feminist and queer conversations. So it varies from time and space about like what is the conversation that people want because I'm usually mm. in to consult a lot of times because I know that I'm not black a lot of people will tokenize me to speak on black lives right but mm. I do try to come in and insert myself and say well as a non-black person but a person of color this is how I'm doing this work because we also have to, like you mentioned, there is anti-Blackness in all of our communities, just like there's anti-Asianness, homophobia, anti-Indigenous, and stuff like that in all of us. And so right now, what we're doing is like just being able to integrate a lot of intersectionality, coined by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. Woo. Yep, yep. I just put, I just put a, a talk of hers, on, well, her TED Talk in our newsletter this week. So that was a very fitting shout out. Yeah. Sorry, I got excited because intersectionality, I know people have been saying it a lot lately, but it just explains everything. Oh my God. It really does. I didn't really realize does. that I was also on your newsletter, by the way. So I was like, who's this newsletter? But also, oh, <laughs> oh, God. Ah. But yeah, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality is so important. And a lot of people throw it around like as if it's like some sort of glitter and then, or a checkbox and they call it done. And like, no, like we have to be very intentional. And unfortunately, a lot of people are asking people who have those marginalized identities are tokenizing them and not giving them the credit, the payment that they deserve for their work. So a lot of people that I know of are burnt out. I'm burnt out, like, but I'm trying to do the best I can to like be in those spaces and lean into those spaces while also keeping in mind of people's fragility and learning spaces as well. So right now I'm in the process of like just updating more curriculum to kind of reflect about like what is going on because COVID has really brought light to a lot of communities who are suffering due to our system that is super not perfect and we need to reconstruct this, redo this, or even like just throw away everything and then just restart from the beginning. Like it's just so it's so sad to see how much it has influenced 
and affected our indigenous community, our Latinx community, our black community, our folks who are in disability communities, right? Where like where a lot of us are working from home when many folks who have disabilities would be like requesting to work from home, but they were used And they weren't able. Yeah. So it's just like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. I was listening to a podcast and it was a woman who she's disabled and has a child and she's, I think she was a lawyer and she was asking to work from home more often and could feel that her firm was getting annoyed by her. And I was like, haha, jokes on you, everybody, because now you guys just look like assholes because pretty much everyone can work from home in certain industries. Yeah. So that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. I was like, nothing is impossible now. That's the thing with COVID. That's what it showed. It was like, you cannot say it's not possible. And the other thing I noticed too was like saying that these big conferences that are like hundreds and hundreds of dollars to put on, which I understand I'm in the event industry full time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I want that to happen because it pays for me to live, but also it's not accessible from an economic standpoint. But that's a whole nother conversation, (laughs) obviously, (laughs) like, which I know. Well, do you have any resources that you can suggest to maybe other non-POC people, folks who are who are looking to have more conversations with their families? I don't yeah. know if you have any suggestions. I think it's really important to figure out like what is it that they're hoping to have conversations about. Like I love this podcast. Like I can say like, this podcast is one. And I think also like what is the most salient identities in your family or the community that you're working with, right? So like if it was my family, I would recommend the book by Frank Wu. It's called Yellow Race in America Beyond Black and White. It's a very, very academic book, I will say. Oh my God. But it's really good at talking about how to break down the Asian diaspora. There Mm. are some missing parts, but I totally get that. Not everybody can cover everything. I love Francesca Ramsey. I love listening to podcasts like the NPR one where it's like code switch yes mm-hmm. oh loves code switch mm-hmm. there's so many out there I bet you're just looking up something and you'll find it yeah and then also for joining like Facebook groups or join and listen to folks who are doing activism in your local community that's also very true what is the other organization that you are part of the LGBTQIA plus yeah. So the other organization that I co-lead um, is the Austin Queer Asian. We started that out last of last year and was an inspiration from Misfits, which you led in. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I didn't know the whole thing was inspired by Misfits. That's amazing. Yeah, because oh, yeah. we realized like we needed more conversations about it. And we were like, this is one of the few programs that we see that are about Asian identities. We should create a freaking group. And we're like, hell yeah. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Okay, cool. I'm going to ask you, I'll I'll email you this so that you can, or I'll Google and look up the links and then I'll make sure that I share all this in the show notes. Mm. And then last kind of thing, I know you have a meeting and I want you to be able to have a break, but are there any women of color who are inspiring you right now? And obviously when I say women, I mean like women and self-identifying females of color in our community we want to be inclusive so I was like I don't know if anyone's kind of like sparking 
I think it's really important that, that we highlight some of the well-known ones, but also I want to highlight the folks that we don't necessarily hear often in our local community. And since we're talking about Austin and, yes. and San Marcos, because they're relatively close, Dr. Sherry Ben, Ms. Uh, Joni Wilson, uh, Dr. Silva, Ina, oh my God, Ina's amazing, Christina Huang. God, you, you know, like, oh my gosh, you know, oh oh my God, everyone has done such amazing work and we're still doing work and we don't give ourselves credit. And I believe that it's really, really important for us to be able to not just support each other, but also highlight the work that we do because we have a tendency to like go back into the background and that's it and like shine the light on others. And, you know, that's cool and all, but also we deserve some love too. So I agree with that. I agree with that. And shout out to Regine, who's putting on Juneteenth today in Austin. This podcast is going to go out after Juneteenth, but I'm still going to shout her out. I know that her and Pam at Six Square are doing a shit ton of work for this festival, for this virtual festival today. But yeah. Do you have anything else that you want to add or share with anybody? Yeah, so one of the things that I always like to share with folks is this quote, or like two quotes, that my my supervisor, my previous supervisor, said to me as I was driving up to Austin for my interview for this current position at UT. And one of the things he said was, remember, you are your ancestors' wildest dream and manifestation of all that's needed to be here and get here beyond. As he was like, saying, I love you. Hyping you. Yep. Hyping me. And then also lastly, for folks who are also like, you know, in that imposter syndrome and are like, well, where do I start? I don't think I can start. Yada, yada, yada. And also saying like, I'm not enough to have this conversation. Know that everyone's on a different journey, but also have compassion for yourself and for others, because one day you're going to be an elder and you're going to get annoyed with this other person, but remember that they used to be where you are. Mm. Also know that you're going to make mistakes. So own it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, the fear stuff. That's a whole nother. Like I said, some of these things are like complete and total other one hour conversations, mm-hmm. but also so important. I like what you just said though. All right. Well, that was my episode with Gwen Hyung. Thank you for listening all the way until the end. What'd you all think? Was it helpful? Is it making you think about how you're going to have conversations with your family? Uh, For my non-black women of color listeners that are here, how have your conversations with your families been going? Have you made any headway? I'm curious to know. And if there are any resources out there that you think would help other people, please send them my way so I can share and add it to our anti-racism for uh, women of color document that I'm collecting um, different pieces of information as things pop up on the internet. And if you like the show today, share it with a friend you think would like it too. You can always find me on Instagram at Company. Make sure you write a review. Uh, I was going to say rate, so sorry, <laughs> but you should rate it also. Subscribe. It really helps other people find us, and that will help us continue the podcast. So if you're still listening, the theme of the episode was Thrive. 
DM me. Let me know how you're thriving. I just had a really lovely conversation with a friend and she was like, just, you know, we were talking about how we are just happy that we weren't white. Um, <laughs> she's a, she's a black woman and we were just like, you know, I love being a woman of color and I hope you do too. So let me know what thoughts you have and thank you so much until next week.